everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From? Hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today we are joined by a lovely scientist and guest, Megan, who is currently a graduate student at Harvard University. Let's welcome to the stage, Megan. Hey, Megan, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. We're excited to have you on today. Megan recently earned her BS in chemistry from the University at Buffalo, where she synthesized new porous inorganic materials under the guidance of Professor Timothy Cook. She is currently a first-year PhD student and National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow at Harvard University. In the group of Professor Daniel Nocera, she studies photocatalysis and other energy-relevant re reactions. She is an advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion in STEM, and loves to explore new ways to engage general audiences in chemistry and support the next generation of scientists, which I think is a shared mutual interest, obviously, in the best at STEM from. So Megan, let's start off with our very first question. Tell us a little bit about your background and you as a person. Yeah, so thanks again so much for having me. Um, I'll give you a little, uh, I guess, backstory. So I moved around quite a bit um, when I grew up. So I lived in Delaware for several years and then moved into upstate New York, um, right outside of Rochester. And then I moved down to Mississippi for a few of my high school years. So um, I think that was a pretty tough experience just moving around so much. But um, in retrospect, being thrown into the new environments and cultures really taught me how to be adaptable. Um, and it also taught me kind of how to take full advantage of whatever opportunities are presented, um, even if they aren't necessarily what you expect. <laughs> so um, I also grew up with two older brothers um, and they really taught me how to have a thick skin and <laughs> likely also contributed to my kind of competitive nature. Um, but I didn't have much of an awareness of what a PhD was or how research really worked, but I knew I had an interest in helping others and trying to make an impact um, on a large scale. I also really enjoyed my science classes. Um, so I kind of paired these two interests together and thought that I wanted to be um, a medical doctor. So when I entered undergrad at the University at Buffalo, I was on a pre-med track um, but quite quickly, I realized that I loved chemistry, um, actually in my first semester of taking Gen Chem. Um, so I started doing undergraduate research that first semester with my Gen Chem professor, uh, Dr. Tim Cook. And um, I had a great experience in his lab, and it very quickly became my happy place um, to get to synthesize new molecules and and just constantly be learning new things. Um, it was especially impactful that I could kind of connect what I was doing in lab to the really, um, at, the at the time they didn't feel simple, but the simple concepts that I was learning in general chemistry, um, that was a really powerful experience for me. So once I came to understand what a PhD consists of um, and with the help of a plethora of really wonderful mentors, who supported me along the way. I tried to position myself um, for PhD programs and I did that by applying for some um, scholarships and fellowships like the Goldwater Scholarship and the National Science Foundation 
um, graduate research fellowship. Um, and then I applied to PhD programs and I'm really enjoying my first semester at Harvard. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And I think we have a, a mutual story. Um, I actually joined my first semester in my general chemistry lab professor's um, research, and that was my introduction to chemistry. So I, um, I totally understand. And I think you've, you mentioned two things that I want to mention. Um, one is we have this, or I found that our guests have this consistent theme of embracing randomness. And I think that um, I, I hope that you could touch on that a little bit, especially with all of your moving and adaptability. Um, can you speak a little bit to that and how you have embraced randomness? I think sometimes it can be a little difficult at first to embrace randomness. Um, I know for me, growing up, I had always envisioned that I would be um, a medical doctor. So when I kind of fell in love with chemistry and being in the in the lab, I struggled for several months thinking about, you know, is a PhD what I want? Should I stick with kind of this career that I had planned out in my mind, or should I follow what I'm more passionate about? Um, and I think generally following your passions is um, important. And I think what really helped me embrace the randomness was having mentors that I could talk to. I, I can't underscore the importance of being able to, um, you know, go into a professor's office and just tell them where you're at and what you're thinking. Um, and also having the opportunity to talk to graduate students about kind of their journeys and, and looking at resources, you know, like this podcast and hearing about how other people ended up where they are. I think um, some of the most uh, inspiring career stories are the ones that the person in the position they're in now didn't expect to be in. And I think that's one of the exciting parts of life. So I've come to really embrace it. And um, anytime I see a, a challenge or an opportunity that I think would help me grow as either a person or a scientist, I always try to um, get involved as quickly as possible and do what I can to um, you know, further myself through those sorts of opportunities. What I appreciate most in your um, answer is also the, the second point that I wanted to make, which um, you touched on quite heavily, which is it takes a village and it takes a village of mentors, colleagues, cohorts, family members, friends. Um, you are not alone in this. Um, and you are not alone throughout your, your STEM career, and let alone your STEM studies, right? Yes. I think another, um, I guess, thing that I found to be, um, to help make science inclusive for me personally is kind of taking those risks and opening up to people who you might want to be your mentor. Um, so... For example, when I started working with my uh, Gen Chem professor, Tim Cook, it was very much he was my research advisor. But over the years, um, working with him, you know, I realized the value and also learning from his experiences, taking the time to go and just talk with him about life and about how he got to where he is. Um, and I, I took advantage of um, so many 
wonderful faculty members and what they had to offer in terms of mentorship. I, even though I wasn't um, as interested in organic chemistry, I still took the time to, you know, go to office hours. And even if you don't have questions, just chat about um, what what the field looks like, what you can do as a scientist. It It's really been um, fruitful to spend time building those relationships. Yeah, building relationships and leveraging to networks. I think that is huge um, and something that students don't necessarily think about um, at, at first is the, the thought of a network really opens up a lot of doors and, um, you know, harking back to embracing randomness. That is the epitome of randomness. So we've, we've focused a little bit about your past. So let's actually switch gears and think a little bit about your future. And when you, when you think about goals, life goals um, and aspirations, you know, what first comes to mind and how does STEM align with that? Yeah, so I'm currently really interested in going into academics and becoming a professor. And I think there are two big reasons for this. First of all, it kind of fulfills my um, intellectual aspirations to be able to do impactful research and to contribute to making scientific advances that truly can reach you know, thousands or millions or billions of people. Um, so I'm interested in addressing kind of issues of equitable energy access and climate change through my science in the future, um, because I see those as areas where I can contribute to making an impact on a global scale. So that's one side of it. And then I think the other side of it is very connected to these great relationships I've had with um, professors uh, throughout my career thus far is I see, you know, being a professor as a position where you can build those personal relationships and you can impact people on a very deep level. Um, so I think I wouldn't be where I am today without the support of some of those peoples. And I also want to be somebody who can kind of embolden the people around me to pursue their dreams and to have the confidence to try to tackle challenges that they're interested in, in the same way that my mentors have done for me. So being a professor has, has both breadth and depth um, that really attracts me to that career path. Um, but I'm still very open-minded and I have five years to go, so we'll see. <laughs> well, at least five years, maybe even <laughs> a little bit more, but we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> So when I think of a professor, um, you know, when I think of the career of a professor, I think of it in, in a couple of different ways, one of which is obviously is the mentorship of students. The second is being a subject matter expert in your respective field. Um, but then the other piece is, um, which I think that you, you touched on a little bit about sort of general aspirations, um, solving big world, big picture problems is that you're constantly invited to be a subject matter expert in policymaking, in management, in advocacy, and all of those different things. Is that maybe part of part of the professorial sort of allure? Absolutely, it is. And um, for me, because I really do enjoy meeting new people and sharing experiences, I think there's a lot of power in that. And when you're a professor who truly is the expert, um, on what they're working on and can collaborate with other scientists uh, through having that strong network, 
Um, I think that's really an attractive part of the job as well. And I also really enjoy um, public speaking. It's something that initially was a very big fear of mine. And of course, I mean, right, to some degree, it still is. It's always scary to get up in front of a group of people. But um, I think I've really enjoyed watching myself improve in, in that way. So I look forward to being able to share my science um, with different audiences um, through, you know, public speaking, through personal connections, as well as um, I've really been enjoying uh, doing STEM outreach and bringing kind of uh, science or chemistry concepts to the public through like hands-on um, experiences. So that's a fun um, opportunity that I can continue uh, into a career in academics for sure. So let's talk a little bit now about your current expertise or maybe your most recent past scientific expertise, if you will. Um, when you talk about inorganic materials and you talk about sort of their um, think impetus in the world, um, you know, what is the big, the big picture of your research, of your undergraduate research? And then we'll obviously talk a little bit more about your graduate research. Sure. So um, in my undergraduate uh, years, I really spent a full three and a half years working on research that I truly loved um, and I'm still wrapping up. So all of my work utilized inorganic self-assembly to make porous materials. So the idea behind self-assembly is really quite simple. Um, it's almost like using uh, Lincoln log toys to build a structure. You can use really simple uh, components and make something relatively complicated um, just by taking advantage of different geometries. In most of my work, I use different dicarboxylate uh, ligands. Uh, so those are organic components and they connect to each other through inorganic uh, components. In my case, these inorganic components were zirconium oxo clusters and when you combine, uh, for example, six bridging ligands and four of these inorganic clusters, you can make a tetrahedron. Um, so you can think about a tetrahedron and there's an internal cavity, there's a space within that molecule. Um, and that's what gives rise to the porosity and the high surface area that these materials have. High surface area materials have been used for gas separation, gas storage, drug delivery and things like that. Um, but most of my work was relatively fundamental, kind of on the side of um, how can we make these systems more tunable? Um, so if you want to use them for some application, um, you can get your desired properties from your material through um, many different routes. So one thing I explored was adding functionality off of those um, zirconium oxo uh, clusters by functionalizing those cyclopentadienyl capping ligands. Um, and then another project that I'm still in the process of wrapping up kind of um, is exploring how we can use different building blocks. So different starting materials, but end up with the same product, but with better um, phase purity. So sometimes um, when you're making these self-assembled structures, you might get, in my case, a tetrahedron and one that we call the lantern. So instead of four 
node components and six bridging ligands, you get half of that. You get three bridging ligands and two node components. So to avoid that, we can start with different starting materials um, that will help us favor the desired product. So when you talk a little bit about the, the gas storage that is enabled through these um, sort of tetrahedron um, surfaces um, or por porous um, materials, um, how do you identify the quantity quality of the gas that's actually stored in there? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So um, I think something that's always important to keep in mind is sometimes in, in academic research, uh, we're a little disconnected from um, the actual application. So I'll, I'll kind of add those caveats in. So what we do uh, in the lab is we measure what uh, we call a surface area using a surface area analyzer. Um, and what these do is they you put your sample in, and um, in principle, they remove all of the gas from your sample. So you should have an empty pore. And then it very, very slowly starts to add nitrogen molecules in until it forms a monolayer on the surface of your material. And from the amount of nitrogen that you can um, add to form a monolayer, you can then do some math to figure out what the effective surface area is. Um, but as you can imagine, this would be a little bit different depending on what molecule you use uh, to measure that surface area. So in our lab, we, and with my work, we use nitrogen molecules, but um, there's a lot of interest in uh, capturing CO2 molecules, for example, right? So um, for things like that, you could then do the same thing with CO2. Um, and there are lots of groups out there that use either materials similar to mine or what we call metal organic frameworks, which are instead of having a discrete molecule, you extend it in three dimensions. Um, and they can have surface areas on the order of uh, the surface area of a football field in one gram of material. Um, so they're, yeah, they're very impressive in that way. Um, but of course, there's, you know, still room for improvement because while you can have high surface areas, you might be plagued with you know, low stability or issues with instability around water um, and things like that. So definitely still work to be done to make these applicable. What kind of instrumentation then do you use? Because I would assume that once you synthesize these materials, then you have to look at their purity. You would have to look at the yield. You would look at, but I mean, you already talked a little bit about the surface analyzer. So what, can you give us an idea about what else you have actually um, used in, in analyzing them? Absolutely. And that was one of my favorite parts of my undergraduate research is that because these porous materials are molecular and they're not the extended solid materials, I was able to use traditional solution state characterization methods. So I use nuclear magnetic resonance um, to see um, all of the protons on the molecule and what environments they were in. So um, my tetrahedra are quite symmetric, um, which means um, if they are pure materials, they should only have a few peaks in their NMR spectra. I also used um, diffusion-ordered spectroscopy, which is another NMR technique, but it uh, basically gives you an idea of um, how 
your molecule is moving in solution and how quickly it is diffusing in solution. So that can also give us an idea if, for example, our proton NMR is not super convincing, we can do that to see, do we just have one species or do we have something that's also moving faster? Um, on top of that, I used a lot of um, mass spectrometry um, and that's where we basically inject a solution of our molecules into a mass spec and we bombard it with a bunch of electrons. And after that, we can see how those electrons basically ionize our molecule and we can um, see what the mass of our molecule is and that confirms um, phase purity. And then infrared spectroscopy, um, I also did thermogravimetric analysis that gives us an idea of at what temperature do they decompose. I've done single crystal x-ray diffraction work um, as well as powder x-ray diffraction in those cases where we um, might want to evaluate the bulk purity, not just a single crystallite. Um, and then as you mentioned, the uh, surface area analyzer. Yeah, and thank you for, I think, um, calling out the solution state versus the, the solid state, because that was going to be actually my next question of, um, you know, how do you, <laughs> do you do solid state metrics or not? Um, so let's actually move on, though, because you're not doing the same thing at Harvard as you did at the University of Buffalo. So um, talk a little bit about photocatalysis and why you're kind of deviating and pivoting. Yeah. Of course. So I think something important to me when I was entering graduate school and choosing a graduate program was exploring science that I was less familiar with. Um, I think that's always a scary experience to kind of enter a new field or a new subfield. Um, but a PhD is really the time to learn new things. So I wanted to kind of maximize my experience here by um, throwing myself into some new chemistry. So um, I had relatively little experience in undergrad studying things like reactivity. I had no experience um, with photochemistry or catalysis. So uh, the Nocera lab here at Harvard was really a perfect fit for me to explore these new topics. Um, and then I also chose this group because we have a lot of freedom and we're able to kind of forge our own path and do whatever chemistry we're interested in. So the topics that our grad students and postdocs are working on right now range from studying ribonucleotide reductase to making quantum spin liquids. Like we really run the gamut. Um, so I have the chance to kind of make a project that speaks to whatever my interests are. So. I plan on continuing to do synthetic chemistry just because I love the feeling of making new molecules. Um, but now I'm going to be making molecules that can interact with light. And hopefully when they interact with light, they'll drive important chemistry. So for example, the oxidation of like feedstock natural gases into useful fuel products. So an example of this would be turning methane into methanol. Um, and that's a uh, it may seem, seem simple, but it's a pretty difficult transformation because um, methanol is going to be easier to oxidize than methane. So as soon as you turn some methane over to methanol, a lot of times your catalyst will then just continue to oxidize that methanol into other products that we might not be as interested in. So it's a balance of trying to figure out how can we turn methane into methanol without making 
um, an abundance of other over-oxidized products. So um, I'm also looking forward to getting into the details of reactivity and electron transfer in photocatalytic systems. Um, in this group, we have femtosecond and nanosecond lasers, and we can use these to help us understand like the rates of electron transfer and what excited state species we have um, when we're exciting these molecules with different uh, light sources. Um, so I'm really excited to really learn these techniques and see how they can um, help me become more creative when I'm thinking about uh, my future projects too. I think you touched on it. I mean, the, the research in photocatalysis is obviously not only critical, but it's also um, uh, interesting, obviously. Um, but I think that you touched on a subject that I'm, I'm curious if you could elucidate about the ability that you have a wide range of sort of opportunities within the lab to explore sort of different science um, and that your PI is, is actually, it sounds like um, he is very um, purposeful in, in doing that and allowing his students and his postdocs to do that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think he is definitely purposeful um, in doing it. You know, as I mentioned, I really enjoy getting insight from other students, whether they be my peers or, you know, possibly mentors. And what I've heard from a lot of the group members is it can be tough at first when you're trying to figure out what you want to work on, because there are so many options. And, you know, I think there are some groups where you might be kind of handed a project um, or really given a path to walk down. Um, but I think especially because I'm interested in going into academics, there's going to be a great benefit for me to figure out what is a good idea? What is a bad idea? When do you push to continue a project? And when is it time to set it down and maybe try something different? Um, and I think that is why uh, Dan does it this way is because it, it really helps us see the whole picture of what it takes to be a scientist. Um, because chemistry doesn't always work. In terms of the breadth of research that goes on in the group, um, I think um, that was super important to me when joining because um, I want to be able to come up with creative new ideas and we're kind of a product of our environment, right? So it's very interesting to hear um, some of our uh, group members talking about ribonucleotide reductase, which I know very little about, and they're looking at this very complicated radical transport um, mechanism that people have been studying for decades, um, right? But that's kind of a source of inspiration. How can I relate that to photocatalysis? You know, how, uh, how can I learn just general things about radicals from something like that? So, um, I think there's a lot of value in having a group where um, maybe you're not all experts on the same thing, but you're all experts on something. Um, and it's been a really exciting experience uh, being a new member in the group because I can kind of just walk up to anyone and ask, you know, what are you working on? And I most of the time don't really know what they're talking about, but there's just so much to learn. Um, and I think that's kind of a great place to be. Well, that's a tremendous place to be. Um, and I, I love that answer um, because I think while you, I have this term about um, growth mindset, right? Um, and it's not just my term, it's a lot of people's terms, but I think it's it's also the fact that you're around just wicked smart people 
who are doing some really wicked smart science um, and how do you learn from them um, and, and learn from their successes and learn from their failures too because even though you do fail it's still learning um, and I can't I can't describe how many times I have failed at experiments in my past um, but you know what it always actually contributed to the learning yes exactly exactly so um, I think we're we're about at time, but um, I I wanted you to reflect a little bit about you know your career thus far, and if you were to you know run into Megan ten years ago, um, what kind of um, wisdom would you impart in her? I don't think I'd say much to be honest. <laughs> I think um, you know part of life is figuring it out and. Um, I'm very happy with where I am now. I'm happy with the decisions I've made. Um, and not only the decisions I've made, but I think whatever decision you make and whatever the outcome may be, it's it's always about making the best of it, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't think I'd have too much advice for my younger self other than, you know, keep taking risks. Um, and I think it, I didn't really start taking risks um, until I was uh, in college. Um, and I, I definitely could have started that earlier and kind of explored my career options a bit earlier. But at the time, like I said, I had no idea what a PhD was. Um, so I guess maybe I would have, you know, told myself what a PhD is. <laughs> um, but other than that, you know, I'm I'm pretty happy with how things have turned out and I'm excited to see where things go from here. That's wonderful. And that's that's pretty good wisdom. I'm not going to lie um, to be reflective in that and not have any regrets or have very few. Um, I think that's that's great. Um, and with that, Megan, I want to say, you know, how appreciative I am of your time um, and joining us today and walking us through not only your background, but your research both past and future i think it's exciting you're doing some really wonderful work um so thank you again for being on our podcast well and thank you so much for having me of course of course um and for our listeners always remember to ask yourself where does your journey stem from bye everyone <laughs>